So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 3 with me this morning. John chapter 3, as we continue to go through our series. If you are a brand new visitor to our church or you've been just new coming, I'm preaching through the fourth gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And today we finish up John chapter 3. I've titled the overarching series called Conversations with Christ, and yet I have to tip my hand a little bit and say that today's passage kind of goes against my overall theme, because I've submitted that the Gospel of John, which is really John the Apostle's biography of Jesus, kind of focuses on conversations that Jesus has, has with various people. But so far, in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, Basically, John the Apostle starts by giving his God-inspired declaration of who Jesus is. And then John the Apostle tells us about the profound testimony of John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist gives his first public sermon, proclaiming that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And it's really not until you get to verse 35 of John chapter 1, where Jesus actually starts to have conversations <laughs> with various people. And that's where we discover how Jesus interacted with James and John and Andrew and Peter, and finally Philip and Nathaniel. So those first six of those disciples. But then comes three amazing interactions in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. In the beginning of John chapter 2, we have the first sign that John talks about in all of his gospel. He has chosen seven in particular signs, which climaxes with an eighth one, which is the actual resurrection of Jesus. But here in John chapter 2, you get Jesus turning water into wine, if you remember that great sign. And it showcases that Jesus is supremely better in providing and in giving us satisfaction. And why would you say that? It's because Jesus supremely cleanses and purifies. Next in chapter 2, you have Jesus clearing out the temple where he turns over the tables and he creates a lash and he drives everyone out. And there we see that Jesus is one with the supreme authority. He is truly our mediator to God. And of course, that is followed by the most famous of interactions where Jesus meets secretly at night with this teacher of the law, Nicodemus. And there we learn that Jesus is supreme over the law and that he is also the supreme gift and savior. Now, as we come to the end of chapter three, you're going to get a fourth interaction and it doesn't include Jesus at all. <laughs> it's, it's all about Jesus. But now we're back to John the Baptist again, after which, if you take notes and you want to see kind of flow of books, after this little interaction here, John the Baptist is never heard of again. You never hear about him again. He drops off the scene. And starting in chapter 4, which I can't wait to get to, we see Jesus and nothing but Jesus as he meets and talks and heals and saves and provides for our salvation and ultimately by dying for our sin for God's glory. If you haven't figured it out yet by the cover of your bulletin or if you take notes on the notes that are provided for you to follow along, I have titled my sermon this morning in John chapter 3, 22 to 36 as embracing the true superiority of Christ. 
embracing it, not just giving head assent to it, not just nodding, not just kind of playing church with me this morning. Well, let's be honest, and we can all do that, because I think it's a fascinating thing, isn't it, to constantly consider that Christ is better, that Christ is better. And I know, looking at your faces at various levels of awakeness, all right, and without distraction, I know that all of you in here would say, oh, Pastor Steve, goodness, Christ is better. Of course he's better. But I want to submit to us that we can subtly substitute other things and other people for what should be reserved for Christ. It's very subtle and very easy to drift towards other things or other people. You see, John the Baptist was considered a great preacher. He's considered that even to this day. In fact, if you go to modern Judaism, depending on how the different people, if you go to Israel today, the number one Jew of history would be Moses. But a lot of Jews today would even consider John the Baptist right up in their top five of great Jewish people of history. He was adored. He was looked up to. His life was life-changing in so many and to others in so many ways. And what's funny is that we tend to read the Bible and the Gospel of John, and we think in terms of Jesus and what's happening in the time written about. But what you've got to wrap your minds around is that the Gospel of John was actually written decades after Jesus has ascended to heaven. I mean, decades, not 10 years or 20, but it could be as much as 50 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And 50 years later, John the Baptist is still on the theological scene of the early church. And I'll prove it. If you want to go there, go to Acts chapter 19. But I will read these words in Acts chapter 19. Decades later, here's what you'll read about. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and it happened that while Apollos, who was another famous Jewish man, was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So he's in what's called Asia Minor. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And they mean John the Baptist. And so Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And I love this. And this is, I got to be honest, as I was studying this, I I found myself praying, looking out my big bay window of my office and looking over at Ken Mount Terrace, because listen to this. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And I just thought, man, Lord, wouldn't it be neat to live in a day and age when you just explain the gospel and people just respond to it? And so when you read the Gospel of John, and I take you to this passage, John the Apostle is not writing simply to just tell us about Jesus. He's writing to a specific group of people, likely in this Ephesus area in Asia Minor, as late as A.D. 80, and he's writing with a specific reason to tell them about Jesus, and namely his overarching theme is Jesus is supreme. He's supreme over Judaism. He's supreme over the law. 
He's supreme over the prophets. And if you will allow John to clear his throat, <clears throat> he's a supreme over even John the Baptist. And to make his point, which you got to love and admire when someone makes their point, he actually uses John the Baptist to prove that Jesus is supreme over John the Baptist. I love that about the Bible. He's going to use John the Baptist to do this. And we're also shown that God hasn't just moved or spoken in the past. God is moving now. Amen? Amen. Listen, I love it. John, Jesus is moving now here in their lives, in the lives of the Asian believers in 8080, and now in our lives in 2017. So take your Bibles and ask yourself to feel what was happening 2,000 years ago, but then say, Lord, talk to me now. Talk to me now to not only sense what was happening with what were described here, but to understand that this was chosen to speak to these Asian believers. And this is chosen to speak to you and I. So here is the word of God. But before I read this, would you allow me one more time? As a dear friend of mine used to say, let's talk to the author before we look to his book. Let's pray one more time. Father God, I thank you and I pray to you right now, Heavenly Father, the author of all things true Father, this is a book that you inspired men to write, but it is your book, authoritative. And this is the Word of God. And so speak, Lord, for your servants here. And Lord, use me to speak your Word clearly and with passion. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, John chapter 3, verse 22, hear the word of the Lord. And it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, this is John the Baptist, was also baptizing at Anon near Salem. Because water was plentiful there. In fact, that word Anon actually means springs. And the people were coming and being baptized. Now notice verse 24 in these parentheses. John the, the apostle wants us to know, for John had not yet been put in prison. That's important because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all focus on the fact that John the Baptist is put in prison and beheaded. John the Apostle never does that. He just says, at this point, John still hasn't been arrested. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew. It's singular, unnamed, on no face, just a Jewish man. And they were arguing over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. In other words, now it seems that there's an argument over supremacy, over popularity. Now look how John answers, because he doesn't answer the way that you would expect him to answer. John answered in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves, and you can see John looking at his own disciples going, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, I love this illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, so because of this, this joy of mine is now complete. And then these famous words that many in this room have heard, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
Then he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And again, a tragic statement. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. And I love this. That God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. If you are one to take notes and you want to follow along, I want to present to you that in the first few verses of this, verse 22 to verse 28, you see that the gospel gives us a true grasp of reality. The idea here is that we're going to embrace the true superiority of Christ. And when you do that, you've got to realize that the gospel will give us, give you, give me, give us a real grasp on reality. Now, this passage is pretty self-explanatory. It really kind of bears itself out. First, you get the setting. Who's involved and where does it happen? Look at verses 22 again, right? Jesus and his disciples went into Judean countryside. At this point, they're in the city area. They're in Jerusalem. John's letting us know. Now they've moved out into the country, into the rural area, into the, the little fishing villages or the little agricultural towns, and they've moved out to do this, and they move to a specific area. And they're baptizing. Now we're going to learn from chapter 4 that Jesus himself doesn't do the physical baptizing. Other people do it. But he says here they're baptizing because it's happening all around him. And John is out there doing it. And you can see from the passage that Jesus is gaining and gaining popularity and notoriety and all these things. And John the Baptist is still busy. He's not been arrested yet. He's not been arrested. Folks are still coming to John the Baptist. But notice the end of verse 23 into verse 24 and the people were coming and being baptized but John had not yet been put in prison you see all of this is happening and there you find out next in verse 25 that there's a plot or a drama there seems to be a conflict because there's some a meeting between the disciples of John and this this lonely singular Jewish man and it all is about a particular nuance of theology namely purification And as we see, this then leads into something bigger and more profound. Now, before I carry on and you just get used to the sound of my voice, get caught by this because I want you to see a real application for this for us in the real time of life here. Because the big idea here is the supremacy of Christ. Yet most of our discussions will always seem to be about much smaller things that people want to fuss about and argue about. Have you ever noticed that? People want to fuss about little nuances of things. And that's because they don't want to make any mistake or make no mistake about it. You're going to always, no matter what you discuss in theology, no matter what are you going to argue about, you're going to always end up in the same place. Who is Jesus and what will you do with Jesus? Doesn't matter where you want to argue or what you want to argue. This is where you're going to end up. And in our passage, the whole interaction started over an argument about purification with one Jewish man talking to the disciples of John. And of interest to me is that the very first sign that Jesus does, and this is why I recap this for you in John chapter 2, was when he turned water into wine. 
Now, you got to remember, though, what, where was that water from? That water was actually purification water. It was the big water pots where people would go and make themselves pure. They would take a, a pitcher and pour it over their hands to purify themselves before they would go into that, to that wedding. And so here is an argument about purification. And yet the first sign that Jesus ever did was he took water of purification and he turned it into the best wine that anybody had ever tasted, which means back, we're right back again that Jesus is superior and supreme. Now, somewhere in the midst of this debate between this Jewish man and the disciples of John, obviously, the popularity of Jesus or seeming decline of John's ministry must have come up. And so it's possible that their dispute centered around the issue of whose baptism was more effectious and whether was it was John the Baptist or was it Jesus? Because if John the Baptist's baptism was, was so good, why is it seemingly now that he is becoming less and less popular and everybody's going to Jesus? Now, whatever was said, however that argument went, it degraded down to this. You can't be right because your guy isn't popular now. That dude is. And that's in 21st century vernacular, all right? So here we are again, back to who is greater, who was more popular, who has the greatest following, who speaks and folks listen. Even as I've read those words, don't you hear the, don't you hear the distress in this argument? Don't you hear just that hint of envy and jealousy? Here are these disciples of John the Baptist. They're loyal and dear to him and they don't understand and like the fact that others are leaving and following Jesus, and especially they can't stand the fact that they're losing good theological arguments because Jesus is winning the day. All of a sudden, they're not playing for the same team. And I remind us that John the Baptist actually comes with some pretty good credentials, remember? Just to give you a refresher, number one, John was chosen by Christ. It's not like John was a nobody. If you go back and you read Luke chapter 1 or you read John chapter 1, John the Baptist was angelically announced. His life was sovereignly planned. I, I love it when at Christmas time you'll read about how he leaped in the womb of his mother, even at the mention of Jesus when Elizabeth uh, is there and, and when Mary comes and says she's pregnant, John the Baptist has a full-on charismatic fit in his mother's womb. I'm sure there was a hanky in there and he was waving it. You can laugh, it's safe. And so when these well-meaning but wrong disciples come with their pleading question, who's greater? Why is all this happening? Why is everybody going to Jesus now and nobody to you? Did you ever notice not only was John not perturbed by the increasing attention being given to Jesus, he's actually pleased by it. He's not perturbed, he's pleased. And his reply to his disciples is very instructive for you and I, even today. Look at how he began saying it in verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. <laughs> now, to think about this, you've got to fast forward maybe into some time and think about the book of the Corinthians, the letter to Corinthians. You see, Corinth was the most gifted church of the New Testament era. And in 1 Corinthians 1... John had considered his calling like Paul tells the Corinthians to do. And it makes me smile for to say, if anybody wants to say, you know what? I am God called to ministry. Guess what you're admitting? 
<laughs> According to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26, uh, Jesus, God chooses the foolish to confound the wise. He chooses the weak to confound the strong. He to- chooses those who are low and despised. So when I boast that I am called of God, I'm really admitting I'm foolish, I am weak, I am low, and I am despised. So just make sure you get that. That's why at the very end of chapter 1 of verse Corinthians, Paul says, so when I boast, I have no choice but to boast in Christ. <laughs> Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, listen, if these words don't sound familiar to John in John chapter 3, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? John's reply in verse 27, listen, guys, no one can get anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. So if you've got gifts, listen to me. They came from God. We got a stupid wasp down there creating a scene. And at this time of the year, they're dumb, aren't they? (laughs) And keep them down that way, because if they come up here, I'll scream like a girl. And that is no uh, against girls. Listen, we should not glorify successful Christians. Listen, it is, a, it is a tragic thing that in the New Testament church, we have come up with the celebrity pastor. Now listen to me now. There's no such thing as a celebrity in God. There's no such thing. It doesn't matter what man or woman that you know of, admire, if whatever books they've read or blogs they have, no matter how big their church or their ministry is, what can they boast except that God gave it to them? Again, I'm reminded, I've told you about one of my favorite church historians is a a pastor by the name of F.B. Meyer. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, and he was very jealous of Spurgeon. Spurgeon would preach to 18 to 20,000. He would preach to several hundred. And then on top of that, what I just learned this week is not only did he have to compete with Charles Spurgeon, then this guy by the name of G. Campbell Morgan came along, another great preacher, and he was out preaching. And the story goes that when they would go to conferences, thousands would come here, Spurgeon, thousands would come here, G. Campbell Morgan, and then when Meyer would get up to preach, 50 to a couple of hundred would show up. And he was very jealous and envious. But then he determined that he could not hate someone that he prayed for. And so he sought to pray for the ministry of Charles Spurgeon and pray for the ministry of J. Campbell Morgan. And in fact, he, would, he was known to say to people, have you heard Campbell preach? Have you listened to Spurgeon preach? And wouldn't you know it, as he prayed for them and their popularity arose and their ministries flourished, that there was so many Christians in London and the churches of G. Campbell Morgan and Charles Spurgeon couldn't hold them, so they all ended up at F.B. Meyer's church. And before long, he was preaching to 3,000 plus people. Now, he worked hard, and he studied hard, and he preached passionately, but it was in service to Christ, not in competition with others. And guess what happened? God blessed him. Not only was John chosen by Christ, but John was commissioned by Christ. You see, John the Baptist, as he says right here in our passage, he was the forerunner. He was the one sent ahead. And we learned about this in John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, and again in verse 15. But remember what he said in John chapter 1, verse 23? If you have your Bible and you turn back, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. You see, John the Baptist, he wasn't put off by the supremacy of Christ. He enjoyed it because he knew what he was called to do. He was to make the way straight. He was a herald. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And funny enough, John the Baptist was never the one that struggled with this. It was always the disciples of his that struggled with it. 
It was the skeptic or the curious onlooker that struggled with it. See, John understood his calling and he accepted it. And we're going to see in a minute he actually enjoyed it. Because John knew. What was he going to boast about? How do you boast when you say, I was angelically announced? That would be like me saying, I, I want to brag how I am the son of Anne and Wayne Bray. Because if you think about it, how can I brag about that? I was not a part of that decision. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that happening. I am the result of that happening. And that is the only boast I can boast. Whatever I am, I am because of God. And this was John. But John's calling was to point to Christ. John's calling was to point to Christ. Look at verse 28 again. Look at what he says in verse 28. I love this. You yourselves, he's looking right at the guys that are coming to him. His own disciples. He looks right at them and says, You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I've been called to point to the one. He's reminding everyone again that he is simply the one who gets to point to Jesus. Listen, in the New Testament, you're going to hear terminology like John was a herald. He was a witness. He was an ambassador. He was salt and light. Do any of those words sound familiar to your Christians here? You can find those words through the rest of your New Testament. But isn't it amazing that throughout the rest of this book, Starting in chapter 4 onwards, you're going to meet people, castaways, searchers, sinners, rejects, blind, helpless, hopeless, and they all find Jesus' mercy and grace, and they all end up pointing to Jesus and pointing others to Jesus. The one thing they all have in common with John the Baptist is saying this, Jesus is supreme. He is the one that is their freedom. He is the one that brought them their healing. He is the one that gives them their sense of purpose. He is the one that gives them value. He is the one that makes them belong, and they all find their home in telling others, look at, look to Jesus, which makes verse 29 and 30 two of my favorite verses, because number two, the gospel gives us a true source of joy. See, the gospel gives you a firm grasp on reality. John wasn't perturbed because Jesus was getting more and more popular. He was fine with it. Not only was fine with it, he actually enjoyed it. And this is what you see in these two verses, because they are an amazing couple of verses when you consider the attitude of the world in 2017. You see, John the Baptist gives us an illustration of what he just said in verse 27 and 28. And look at verse 29. And now we stop and let this soak in. Look at what he says. I love this. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bride, or think in terms of the best man of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So he must increase, but I must decrease. So that friend of the bridegroom in verse 28, or sorry, 29, is like our best man in weddings today. I've had the joy of being a best man, and I've had the greater joy of being the man. <laughs> the one who is the bridegroom right? I've had the joy of doing that. But you know what? You got to realize that in the first century, being the best man was a little bit more inclusive than maybe we see the best man today. William Barclay tells us in the first century that the friend of the bridegroom, he acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. 
He did all of the communicating. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he led him in and went away rejoicing for his task was completed and the lovers were now together as one. So the best man doesn't want to be the center of attention. This belongs to the groom and his bride. Moreover, he rejoices in the privilege of performing his servants in the honor of his friend that he wants everybody to see the sheer delight of bringing the bride and the bridegroom together. (laughs) James Montgomery Boyce says, do you know that joy? John the Baptist says, my joy is now complete. You see, some persons think that there is great joy in material possessions. If I got a bigger house, a more expensive car, name brand clothes, a Rolex watch, whatever it might be. But things in themselves don't satisfy. I have a 2015 Honda Sonata. It's turbo. It's black with silver accents and leather interior and a backup camera and heated and cooled seats. And the thing talks to me and beeps at various times in my driving. And all I ever wanted was my own mid-sized car that was mine. And guess what? Since the day I drove it off the parking lot, it has been the bane of my existence. Because I worry about it. And I worry about where I park it. And then it gets scratched. And in Newfoundland, rock flicks up and dings the paint. Or you go to church and someone loses their door in the wind and it dents the side of your car or your wife wants to buy fall flowers and so now there's dirt in the trunk (laughs) or your daughter takes the mat and that you put there to protect the other mat that protects the carpet and she pushes that mat forward so now the other mat's exposed and maybe that mat will get dirty and then that dirt will fall on the carpet that you're trying to protect You can see, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. All possessions do is not give you joy, they give you anxiety. Others think that there's joy in worldly fame. Go ask Justin Bieber. Achievement or pleasure, they satisfy it best for a short time. Boy says, real joy comes being able to say to Jesus Christ, here am I, Lord, use me. And then finding out that his grace, because out of his grace, he's able not only to use you, but he'll bring others into a saving relationship to himself because of you. At the end of verse 29, in the course of verse 30, John makes two of these massive statements. They are massive, and we never think to connect them together. Because what what he says is John the Baptist basically says, I've stared at and contemplated this over and over again. I think if we truly have huge challenges to imagine what it means to say, my joy is complete. I, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever thought that way ever. I've thought about I have joy. I've thought about that I am rejoicing. I have never thought to look at my wife or my children or my friends and go, my joy is now complete. But John the Baptist says, my joy is complete. He says, it's, it's complete. <laughs> Have any of you ever come so far as to even thinking about saying that out loud? And of course, don't miss that. He says, because my joy is complete, 
He must increase, but I must decrease. But who of us would attach this level of profound humility with John's declaration of profound and complete joy? And yet, do you know that just in the book of Acts to Revelation, the New Testament uses the word joy 36 times in 35 different verses. It uses the word rejoice 51 times in 45 different verses. Philippians uses the word joy and rejoice multiple times. And my favorite preacher of the past, Charles Spurgeon, preached a sermon on this passage in March of 1895, and he said to have a complete joy is to rejoice always. It's a joy found only in the supremacy of Christ. And here's what Spurgeon said, when you cannot rejoice in any other, rejoice in God. When you can rejoice in other things, sanctify all with joy in God. When you have not before rejoiced, begin at once. When you have long rejoiced, don't cease for a moment. When others are with you, lead them in this direction. And when you're alone, enjoy to the full this rejoicing. And by the way, this was a guy who struggled with depression. This is not a guy who's just winging it and flinging it like life was Shangri-La for him. This was a guy who knew the hardship of life. One of his greatest, greatest depressing moments was when he preached and some hooligans yelled out fire in a packed building of 18,000 and eight people were trampled to death. And it was all a lie. And for the rest of his life, he bore the extreme pain of thinking that people died while there to hear him preach. And yet he could say, rejoice and find joy You see, it was John's joy to let Jesus be supreme. It was John's joy to become less and less. And what's the greatest reward of service to Jesus? The greatest reward of serving Jesus is simply the joy of serving Jesus. Leon Morris describes verse 30 as some of the greatest words ever to fall from the lips of a mortal man. He must increase and I must decrease. And what I find interesting, and I hope all you do as well, is what Richard Phillips points out. This is the third must of John chapter 3. You remember back in the beginning, it was, you must be born again in John 3, 7. You must be born again. Then later on in John 3, 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. And then we must decrease so that he can increase in John 30, 30, John 30 verse, sorry, John 3, verse 30. So you have must and must and must. And you can't gloss over this. We say so many things that we actually become numb to what is actually being read or saying. The Bible tells us that we must be born again. There's not an option. There's no plan B. Because we're sinners, we've messed up. We see it and we know it, don't we? But John the Baptist goes against everything we've ever known because the world would say, I don't want to decrease, I want to increase. It's as old as sin itself. Why did Satan do what he did? Because Satan wanted to be God. He wanted to increase, not decrease. He tempted Adam and Eve that if they obeyed, that they would only decrease themselves. But if they disobeyed, they would increase themselves and be like God. And humanity has been trying to increase ever since. And that's why Jesus must be lifted up to die on the cross for our incessant need to increase. 
And so Jesus died for our sin and our pride and our longing to find significant in ourselves or other things or other people. But God so loved us and he loved us so much that he gave his son who must die because we must be born again. And when we believe in Jesus as our only uh, savior, the only response to that kind of love and mercy and grace is like John, we cry out, he must increase and I must... I I can't help but decrease. And notice, it's not I must decrease and he must increase. That's not the order. See, you're not the one who does something. It's the other way around. God acts. He gives us his son who then lives and dies for us and who raises from the dead for us and he offers us forgiveness and he gives us grace and mercy upon every grace and mercy. He promises to give us his spirit and he says he'll never never leave us or forsake us and he promises to prepare a place for us and he promises to remake us and to restore us and he gives us a new name and he, he adopts us and then he uses us and he's coming back for us and he makes death have no power over us and he empowers us to conquer sin and overcome our past and our failures or our lack of parents or our bad decisions. So let God increase and increase and increase. Amen. Yeah, I'm pretty wound up this morning. John says, let me fade into the background. Let the light of God shine brighter and brighter and brighter and let me joyously enjoy it, be warmed by it and be guided by it. Oh God, increase. And don't miss what this means. You see, because God cannot in and of himself increase. He's infinite. But John the Baptist is proclaiming for joy what we desperately need in our lives too. God is the one who gives and we are the one who receives. It's not that we're saying he must increase as if somehow God gets bigger in himself. He's he's. He's big. The idea that John says, my joy is complete because I'm going to spend eternity discovering the endless bigness of God. (laughs) And so, with that as our desire, verses 31 to 36 makes perfect sense because my final point is the gospel demands, but listen, but also produces a belief that acts. You see, if you get a firm grasp on reality... And if you understand true gospel joy, then you discover that the Bible, remember Isaac Watson, his wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? Do you remember the last line of that verse, that song in verse four? Love so amazing, so divine, demands, demands, right? Demands what? My life, my love, my all. Right? Love so amazing. So to, see, verses 31 to 36 is the interpretation of 23 to, 22 to 30. It's important for you and I to get this and see it. We need to understand. Now, what you need to get here is verses 31 to 36 is not John the Baptist talking. It's John the Apostle writing. He is now explaining what just happened. He's filling in the picture of the supremacy of Christ. He's telling us how chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 makes sense. He's describing chapter 3, 16 to 21. Notice how John breaks it down for us. In other words, in John 1, 15, Jesus is the word of God, right? So verses 31 to 6 here is, is gives us the definition of the word of God. And did you notice how John separates things? Notice, he separates Jesus from humans, 
And he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He separates the earthly from the heavenly. He separates receiving from rejecting. He separates believing from not believing. But more importantly, Jesus separ- or, sorry, John the Apostle separates Jesus from everyone else. Jesus is supreme. At best, you can say John the Baptist is a spokesman. That's the best you can say. See, John the Baptist is still a human being conceived by a man and woman and in sin in need of a Savior. But Jesus? Jesus is the God-man conceived by the Holy Spirit without sin. Jesus is the source of not only creation but redemption. Do you remember what the people said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus preached his famous sermon? In John chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, even the audience understood the difference between someone who was speaking about authority and someone who's speaking with authority. Okay? And again, in verse 32, you have a little negative, sober reminder. Look at what it says in verse 32. And it says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. There's that little warning there, that sober reminder. See, Jesus Supreme speaks with authority indeed what he knows because it's truth, but no one receives his testimony. How can that be? I mean, honestly, folks, I I love you all, and and, and, and to some degree, you know what? Because I'm human, I love myself. But, But how can I look at love in the form of God and go, thanks, but no thanks? See, when Jesus exposes himself to us and makes us understand it, I I think that it's just absolutely amazing. And then look at verses 33 and 34, because now it just gets better. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. That God is true. God is true. There's three statements in this. My joy is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And God is true. I set my seal to this. I set my compass to this. This sounds like Paul, doesn't it? Romans chapter three, verse four. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be true and let everybody else be a liar. John 14, 6 now makes sense, doesn't it? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If God is true, then he cannot lie. If he can't lie, he can be trusted. But heed the warning. Al Mohler said this past week, Christians need to understand that pragmatism is one of the main rivals to the Christian understanding of truth. The Christian understanding of truth holds that truth is an objective reality. True because it actually corresponds to reality. Pragmatism that emerged in the late decades of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century holds to the fact that truth doesn't actually exist objectively. This is our warning. We've got to realize that Satan is the father of lies. He's trying to convince us that God cannot be trusted, that we must decide what truth is. That somehow we must trust only in ourselves. And you see, you're right back to the Garden of Eden. Can God be trusted? What did God actually say? And yet if we believe ourselves, we have a record of thousands and thousands of years of human history that when humans trust themselves, what follows? Shame, hiding in fear, the blame game. 
and slavery, not freedom. But as you finish verses 34 and 36, notice that we get the promise of the Spirit of God. We get the Trinitarian intimacy of the Father and the Son, and we get that final plea to believe and not reject. And so Calvary Baptist and friends and visitors, here are some application questions to take home. Number one, does Jesus define you or are you still trying to define yourself? Does Jesus define you or are you still trying to define yourself? See, Jesus is the creator. He's our savior, our redeemer. That great New Testament word, our propitiation, that means our substitute, our Lord and our God. Everything we are and everything we do is simply services of worship offered to the one who has served and saved us. But there's actually two parts to that application question. The first one is to any and all who may not know Jesus yet. If you're here this morning, And my friend, remember this, the Bible is God's word. It's God communicating to us, with us, about himself and about us. So God sets the terms of our identity. He tells you where our value is found and what your purpose is and what your role in life or even for existence. And so when we come to the 21st century, whether it's sexual orientation or questions of gender or male and female roles, whether it's being single or married, divorced or a widow or widower, whether you are parents or if you've adopted, whether you're orphaned or abused, hurt or abandoned, whether you're in your mind incredibly boring or hopelessly misunderstood or misdefined by yourself or your peers, your family, of your friends, if whether it's your past or your present or even the future that does not define you, Jesus does. Jesus created you and he came for you and lived for you and died for you, rose again for you, and now he reigns for you and all you need to do is trust in him. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, Oh, may Galatians 2.20 not just be a coffee mug. For I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Second question. Are you and I proclaiming Christ even when talking about Christ in our lives? Or have we inadvertently become the hero of our own story? Who's the hero of your life? Who gets the glory? Who gets the spotlight? When folks walk away from you, are they thinking about Christ in you or are they tempted to be impressed by you? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Don't set yourself up as the savior of other people because you're gonna fail yourself and everyone around you. Show and talk and serve and display Christ. See, John the Baptist found joy in the increasing nature of God's loving gift, Jesus Christ. He learned and longed to receive from God more than to try and impress God or worse than impress others. A.W. Pink rightly observed, humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less I shall attain unto humility. But if I'm truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I'm constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. So friends, point people to Jesus. Family, point yourself to Jesus. It's funny because John never tells us about how John's life ends. 
Because what better way to end than with a man saying, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist found himself in prison one day, down and discouraged, filled with doubt and loneliness. And what did he do? He didn't turn to his friends, he turned to Christ. He sent these same doubting disciples back to Jesus for help and instruction. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus answered them in Matthew 11, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Thirdly, the litmus test of your relationship with Jesus is found in your joy, not in your comfort. In your joy, not in your comfort. Now my joy is complete. But don't forget that the guy who says this will one day have his head chopped off for standing for truth in the gospel. See, John's joy was that Christ is everything. John's humility led to complete joy. Do you have this in your life? And then finally, the call to believe and or trust is always expressed and displayed in our obedience. And let me wrap it up by this. Can I ask our music team to come forward? Because I've asked them specifically to sing a song for us this morning called Mighty to Save. Thursday night, Debbie cooked a chicken and we had Steve Da over. Steve has gone through some loss. He lost his dad. We wanted to have Steve over to just spend some time with him. And you know what? When you look at all these passages of Scripture, you know, the old hymns of the faith are right. Just as I am, Jesus loves me. Jesus, I come to thee. Jesus is mighty to save. On Thursday night, Steve and I were talking with Abby, and Abby was asking me and Steve questions about economics and jobs and all the things that inquiring 15-year-olds want to know. And we started talking about atheism and the Trinity. And so Steve and I popped open YouTube, and we were showing her some videos. Some of them were funny, and some of them were serious, and we wanted to equip Abby with some good things to look at. And then Abby showed one video to us, a video she was shown at teen camp this past 1st of September. And it was a video of Louis Giglio, and he was talking about how he came to know a girl named Ashley. If you want to look up this video, I think it's called The Fruitcake if you, and Ice Cream. The Fruitcake and Ice Cream. And Ashley was a non-believer who ended up with a girl uh, roommate who was a Christian, and so she would journal. And Ashley journaled, and she called this Christian roommate a fruitcake. And so... Somehow, Louis Giglio came in possession of this girl Ashley's journal. And so he literally reads entries from this journal. And basically, we find out that Fruitcake just lived out the gospel, prayed for her friend, answered her questions, constantly reminded her of who Christ was. And eventually, in the midst of chaos and pain, Ashley comes to know Jesus Christ. And she talks about how she went to her first life group or Bible study and how this group sang. And they sang this song and she said, my soul. And she said, they, they sing differently than we do. And she said, some people even put their hands up, but I felt very uncomfortable. But she said, fruitcake told me that eventually I would feel freedom. Everyone needs compassion. A love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness. The kindness of a Savior the hope of nations. 
So take me, take me as you find me, all my fears and failures, and fill my life again. Now notice this, I give my life to follow everything I believe in, and now I surrender. Shine your light and let the whole world sing. See, we're singing for the glory of the risen King. Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. Ashley went from thinking her friend was a fruitcake to wanting to raise her hands and worship 